0: Roy Sinclair and his partner, Harleco, whose homeland is Japan, go cycling to celebrate Christmas in the Catlands of the South Island. Roy, once head of the New Zealand chapter of the World Peace Bell, sought a replica bell to sight at the Christchurch Botanic Gardens.
1: Sleepless nights by firelight A stranger in this town Laid my loneliness down So long days end with peaceful friends There is no richer why
0: There's a man in a million I like to catch up with, Ross McMillan, a real backroads Kiwi country bloke. Once or twice over the years... He lets us print his poetry for readers of the Central Otago News. His homespun ballads append under the name Blue Jeans. A handsome volume publishes his work in The Country Bloke and Other Verse. We had met a generation ago, yarning outside Naseby's Ancient Britain pub. Homespun nostalgia. He writes often of the gold rushes, farming, and mustering in Central Otago Mountains and of the popular central Otago winter sport, curling. We last arranged a rendezvous when Ross was 73. Harlico and I cycled to Nasebeak Campground before taking on the notorious Danseys Pass route to Oamaru. Ross chats in his Scottish burr, a reminder that a third of Otago and Southland settlers are descended from Scottish immigrants. Folk ask Ross if he's ever travelled. Yes he assures them i'm born at naseby hospital went to ranfley once or twice but didn't like it ranfley's just twelve kilometres away these days it's all different for the young people of naseby they go to work on grain farms of the united states they start in texas to work with the season up towards canada Ross goes on radio. Spectrum documentary about his verse and famous annual Otago horse treks led by his brother Bill. Ross still works on the Naseby farm, although its ownership is in the hands of others in the family. Wish I'd taught the dogs how to crutch sheep. He laughs. At twenty, I was okay. At forty, still okay. But it's a bit rough when past seventy. I stop by the sheep shed for a photo of Ross the next morning on our way to Dansey's Pass. Alaco goes on ahead, as I follow, peddling on the narrow, dusty road through the old Kyburn diggings. I pause by an old bullet hole sign advising the charges at the Kyburn diggings cemetery. I read them again. I remember a single internment on open ground cost one pound sterling. They speak of a harsh life on the goldfields. Even today, we look at these bleak surroundings. The workings of the gold seekers could still be seen in honey-colored, artistically sluiced cliffs. These are diggings left behind after miners come, then leave. Hotels, stores, butchery, bakery and a school too close as customers go, taking their money with them. At least the historic Kyburn School is protected and still stands on the corner of Pigroot and the Kyburn Danzies Road. Also surviving that bygone era is the Kyburn Diggings Hotel, built in 1862. As the flash in a pan prospecting proves, gold is elusive whereas pastoral farming of central Otago offers reliable revenue streams earned in exporting merino wool and meat. In the 1880s arrives an English couple whose industrious initiative is of benefit to everyone. Ernest Hayes served his time as a millwright, acquiring skills as a fitter and turner. As soon as he turns 30, he marries Hannah. She bears five sons, five daughters— They settle on a 150-acre farm at Oturihua, where he tinkers with his labour-saving devices. From his workshop, he turns his inventive mind to problems of their day, an invasion of pasture by rabbit's burrows and rabbit's ravenous appetite, competing with sheep and cattle. Ernest Hayes' answer is to devise a practical smoker for rabbit meat, it's so portable as to transport to potential buyers by bicycle. Hannah Hayes puts their eldest daughter in charge of the younger children, stacks prototypes of the inventions of her husband onto a bicycle to launch her sales mission across Manio Toto, the heart of high-country farming. She cycles remote routes, stopping farm-to-farm to promote Ernest's ingenious products, his rabbit-bait cutter to poison rabbits, and a smoker to enjoy the meat of those that aren't. While Hannah markets the engineering production from their farm workshop in Oturihua, earnest efforts on new inventions promise success with harnessing wind power for irrigation and a simple water pump. An enduring success in his design improving on fence wire strainers, those produced by Hayes engineering works at Oturihua are still in use today. That these ideas could find a place to flourish in the back country is testament to an immigrant's desire to be of direct help improving farm methods and by using mechanical means to lessen back-breaking tasks of those who labour in Maniototo. Today, visitors to Hayes Engineering Works delight in watching the workshop's original mechanical systems still operating. Yet, there's no denying. Ernest's success in business is thanks to his wife Hannah's perseverance as a saleswoman, taking samples of Ernest's first invention, peddling for miles through stark landscapes on her bike, is what secured the sales, and thus the capital to keep up the manufacture. Her initiative is the kind that distinguishes the womenfolk of Maniototo. The Maori name means plains of blood referring to those flowing red tussocks that once covered this land rather than to violence. The Māori had lasting campsites here to hunt and fish for food according to season, so as to carry back to their permanent coastal settlements the bounty of the hinterland. When the first European settlers in Manototo arrived, they are pastoral farmers or gold miners. Many of their descendants still farm here today. Grazing the high country is essential in summer for sheep flocks and cattle to survive the heat on the plains. It's the region of New Zealand having the widest temperature variations, so in autumn the families, neighbours and friends bring supplies and stores to last the annual round-up of thousands of sheep returning to their Maniototo Basin farms over winter. A gold rush grips central Otago in the 1860s, after four gold miners strike it rich in a narrow creek bed on a saddle high in the Ida Range, near Mount Kyburn. Across the Maniototo are sprinkled basic farmyard names chosen by the surveyor John Turnbull Thompson, who is Otago's provincial surveyor, destined to be the first Surveyor General of New Zealand. When he puts a list of Māori names local iwi suggest become official names for geographic features and places in Maniototo, the Pākehā dignitaries consider them too difficult to pronounce. Perhaps peeved with their reaction, the surveyor puts up a new list based on the settler's traditions instead. They can't contend there's any confusion over pronouncing the surveyor's latest suggestions. What we're left with are names of no significance to Māori, and dubbed by others as Thompson's Barnyard, hence we've names of a kind that go with the cottage and kitchen, like Cattle Valley, Pig Island, Miller's Flat, Fruitlands, Dry Bread. Taking the word burn from Northumbrian dialect, there's a Gaelic word burn that translates as fresh water, a series of names Poolburn, Iderburn, burn and to take from old English their word for cows Kai, it forms the place name Kyburn, where cows find fresh water, reminding me it's our rendezvous, Kyburn Diggings, where Harlico will be in a cafe awaiting my arrival. Leaving the old timer, Ross McMillan and me to catch up with each other, She's chosen to ride on, alone, imagining how prospectors out here endured their lonely, harsh life, exposed to extremes of climate, while they dig for gold and sluice the shingle, hopeful of striking it rich. I pedal on in a hurry to rejoin Harlico. I find her happily relaxing in the Danseys Pass Coach Inn. She's on to her second cup of coffee and orders one for me. She's happy and relaxed in a chair on its shaded veranda. It's isolated here, about nineteen kilometres from Naseby. A decidedly flash pub in its day. The hotel offers upmarket dining and, no doubt, costly lodgings. It's built in the 1860s with schist rock, with a kink to match the slight bend in the road it borders. It's here the Parker Brothers, in 1861, boast their discovery of gold, heralding the gold-rush to Naseby and Qyburn. These days it seems a quiet little nook. An occasional vehicle goes past this pleasant summer's morning. The locals question our intention to cycle over the Danseys Pass. One offers his condolences. As it turns out, the climb of about seven kilometres up the pass on a narrow dirt road, twisting through golden tussock hills. Isn't so difficult. Near its summit, a 1950s Hillman Minx stops. Two neatly dressed elderly gentlemen, Keith and Max. Max holds a can with a barometer inside. Taking the lid off, he carefully studies the needle's position, makes some quick calculations to announce, There, two thousand five hundred feet, you're almost there. My father once explained how to use a barometer as an altimeter. And Matt's is a calculation that's close to correct. Dansey's Pass, officially 3,066 feet above sea level, is named after an early lessee, William Dansey, who, with three others and a donkey, explored the pass in the mid-1850s, though the donkey apparently wanders off and is lost William Dansey's keen to develop this new route for access to the back block's farmland. They are the first Pakeha to explore the pass. When it comes to building the road, parts of it rest on underlying schist bedrock, an unforgiving road foundation to fall on. From the summit, we expect the ride downhill to the coast should be a dream. To our surprise, it's hot. Undulating, and despite coffee for lunch, we're soon thirsty as the rush of air on our descent soon evaporates the sweat and dries out our bodies. Our momentum on the metal surface becomes dicey. Breaking hard on bends will surely doom us to disaster. It's one of those roads on which a bit more speed would likely be safer, though it sounds counterintuitive. Cyclists will know what I mean. But we are not yet seasoned cyclists of the extreme kind, with mountain-biking a passion. Both of us begin to lose our nerve, but too late. The road verge is flashing past, with nowhere to arrest our flight with a gentle bump. goes first to crash. Her bare elbow is gashed on unforgiving gravel. This is a cyclist's nightmare. Injured far out in the sticks— With the first aid kit we stumble downhill to find running water. It looks clean. Nevertheless, we are thankful for Spray-On-Dettol to disinfect the wound before bandaging. It heals, leaving traces of a scar, but Harlicka doesn't mind. In years to come she'll show it off with evident pride. We calm down over a leisurely lunch, pleasant beside a bubbling creek. Of course... I think smugly Harloko's crash is down to her lacking experience in Japan of riding on metal roads, whereas I've been brought up to know many such roads. Yet my turn is to come. Riding the same route, I reckon the bike tosses me off. I don't bounce well. My injuries, though impressive, aren't serious. However, having blood mixed with bits of dirt in the wound is a worry. We are temporarily patched up for the trip to continue, only to discover I'd crashed a short distance from the start of Tarseild Road. And just beyond is the beguiling Danseys Pass holiday camp, having an idyllic setting for any longing to relax in the rustic valley. A Singapore holidaymaker writes, ''Great swimming hole, a little chilly. The park provides tyre tubes to float on.'' There are cliffs to jump from. In the evening, the owners sparked up a bonfire and the whole park joined in for marshmallow roasting. Great way to bring strangers together for an evening social. The park borders on a bend in Mati Fenua River. Trout attract fishermen here. Cabins are basic, but that's all we need. We're both a bit sore, so won't be camping in a tent tonight. The community spirit is strong. Parents relax while watching children amuse themselves in the centrally placed playground where they organise their own sports. The camping ground is one of those delightful anachronisms likely to date back to the days the Automobile Association promoted them for its members in the 1950s. They should be protected as historic. This one is run by a robust and friendly guy, Neil, who takes campus welfare seriously. He supplies bandages. He's a first response contact for road rashes on his side of Danzig's past, and recruits a hospital nurse here on holiday to volunteer her skill to put fresh bandages on our wounds. Our bloodied clothing tossed in a washing machine, we're welcomed into this caring circle of holidaymakers. Some of them are collecting unusual quartz stone, unique to the Danseys Pass region. Neil amuses us as he rattles through stones he retrieves from Maere Fenua Riverbed. As a civil engineer by profession, he may understand the chemistry of how the calcite within the quartz is water-soluble and over time may dissolve, leaving within the larger stone a cavity in which may rattle part of the original rock. A rattling rock! Neil knows about rocks. He climbs them. A mountaineer. He likes us to know he is not so much English but a native of Yorkshire. Finding himself now in Aotearoa, New Zealand, as an enthusiast of cycling, he encourages visitors to bring their bicycle to enjoy the environment. We might not be the best commendation for what he has in mind as we present ourselves next morning. "'It's true. I'm in difficulty mounting my bike "'and motivating my stiff bandaged leg into action.' "'We leave Dancy's Pass holiday camp reluctantly, the peddling wounded. "'It's to be a short day on the road across Canterbury Plains "'to a hotel built in 1867 in the heart of Oamuru, the Empire Hotel.' It's in the basement that a remarkable industry crafts deluxe models of the forerunner of the modern bicycle, the penny farthing. Don Speedon comes from Geraldine, an artist, tramper and rock climber always open to a challenge. He's competed professionally in racing modern penny farthings in Tasmania and Adelaide, ends up staying in Australia three years. Seeking a new career... Don teaches English to Japanese till his Oamuru friends Neil Plunkett and Bruce Gibson propose Don joins them to manage what they just bought, Empire Hotel Backpackers. Don agrees. On the side he assembles the popular penny farthings in the hotel's basement. Ordinary models carry a $5,000 price tag. A deluxe model with more nickel plate and a touring seat "'Goes for six and a half thousand dollars. "'To ride them takes technique. "'If an obstacle or jolt take the rider by surprise, "'there's a risk of riding head first over the huge wheel. "'It's the same wheel and axle to which the pedal's power connects directly. "'Falls are common. I, "'I still have a few. "'It happens usually when the foot hits the pedal on the upstroke,' he says.' We chat for ages, discussing the finer skills of making stunning replicas of the famous, though short-lived, bike design of the Penny Farthing. Its tyres of solid rubber have a steel corkscrew running through the centre. It takes two people to stretch the tyre over the 125-centimetre rim to think that this combining of balance and propulsion is a brainchild of a young foreman of coventry sewing machine company in eighteen seventy a design which is superseded within twenty years in its heyday enthusiasts of the penny farthing gather for south island rallies with rides into the countryside even to auraki mount cook region quite a feat i can't imagine riding one a bike so cumbersome its seat so high certainly a great view up here says don with a grin like a coward i decline his offer to try riding a penny farthing. i'm thinking about taking a, a hater while i'm already nursing crash wounds he meets his wife chico a chef and together launch a cafe featuring celtic culture it attracts regular musical gatherings But the lure of Japan is the greater, so Chico and Don Speedin leave Oamaru's cultural heritage to live in Niigata, Japan, where Don teaches English, makes custom tobacco pipes, and keeps his passion for old-style bicycles as being a superior form of transport for their time. But for the time it takes— Walking is the best way to unearth the colour, character and customs of a countryside, and credit goes to New Zealander Craig McLaughlin for being quick to seize the initiative. It was his father having suggested to Craig he learn Japanese at school that gets him started. Craig goes on to graduate with a master's in Japanese, taking advantage in 1986 of the first issues of visas for working holidays by reciprocal agreements between Japan and New Zealand. With growing fluency, Craig studies the art of karate. Back in New Zealand, he takes up flying and, once qualified, becomes a commercial pilot with Milford Sound Scenic Flights. Japanese tourists flock to New Zealand, eager to see the Southern Alps. Craig's visiting a Queenstown hotel promoting the flights when he meets a new Japanese tour guide. Six months later, they marry. With his karate credentials from Japan, he sets up a dojo teaching the discipline in Queenstown. On visiting Japan, he's inspired to walk the length of the country in 99 days. Later, he writes of his experience in Four Pairs of Boots which sells about 50,000 copies in Japan. Craig McLaughlin encapsulates his experience of walking and touring in commentaries which accompany editions of the well-thumbed travel guides of Lonely Planet. Even to his descriptions of travelling through Greek islands in the Mediterranean. New Zealanders, like them, make their mark in the voyage of discovery in living among other cultures, viewing unfamiliar horizons and being the better for keeping so many memories alive in the minds of others. The impressions they convey of life here in Aotearoa continues to attract tourists, despite the deterrent of the pandemic disease COVID-19 ravaging the human race. When the threat of spreading infection recedes, a host of the adventurous will again set forth on bikes, horses, yachts or on foot to meet us on our shores, mountains or backcountry roads.
1: I always wanted to So we're going on a summer holiday To make our dreams come true For me and you
0: On next week's Historic Souvenirs at the same time We'll dip into the files that record the arrival of internal combustion engines that put horsepower out to grass, as a technological revolution overtakes the Waikato, bringing all the problems of pollution and global warming to contend with. Next week's edition features the research of the most ardent of admirers of the heavy horses, hauling folk and freight on the often potholed roads of that time. Peter Lane of Hamilton. In their contribution to the economy, the industries of motor engineering and road building emerged as major employers in the servicing of travel and cartage across the region. Until then, thanks for joining us on Historic Souvenirs.
1: Thank mm-hmm.